Welcome to the Social Impact Pulse, a podcast where we aim to cultivate intimate conversations with entrepreneurs working at the intersection of the sustainable livelihoods and lifestyle sectors. Each episode is a no-filter conversation with entrepreneurs where we dig deep into the values that they hold dear and how that molds and shapes the social impact they strive for through their organizations. In this series, we're excited to be partnering with the Rise Artisan Fund, an impact investment portfolio that invests in early-stage artisan enterprises, creating sustainable livelihoods for rural communities with few economic alternatives. We'll be speaking with the social entrepreneurs that are a part of their portfolio. And for more information about the Rise Artisan Fund, check out our show notes. In this episode, we are joined by Rashmi Bharti, co-founder of Avni a community built on the principles of sustainability and local empowerment that focuses on developing new approaches to sustainable, conservation-based livelihood generation for rural communities. We'll hear about how Rashmi and her husband's desire to get away from the hustle and bustle of city life led to the founding of the organization, how they have created an ecosystem based on sustainability in the supply chain that has grown over time, the challenges they have faced over the years, and the dreams and aspirations for Avni. On with the show. So hello, I am Rashmi Bharti from Avni. Avni is an organization working in the Indian Himalayas for the last 25 years. Primarily, our work has focused on creating livelihoods in remote Himalayan villages. The work takes into account local resources and the contextual reality of where we live. And in dialogue with the communities, tries to set up sustainable enterprises that can improve the quality of life in the village as well. Well, Rashmi, take us back to how this journey began for you and tell us about how Avni has come to be the organization and brand it is today. Well, I think the genesis of Avni sort of was in our desire to uh, live in a village, to change our own lifestyle. So that journey started in 91. That's the first time we came to the mountains in search of an alternative to a regular lifestyle of having a job nine to five and, uh, you know, the life of a city, so to speak. And we both really liked the mountains. And we thought, why don't we explore the option of going and living in a village where life is simpler? And, you know, we can be closer to ourselves. So in that exploration, we landed up in the Himalayas in Kumao. And we lived here for about a year and a half. And that gave us the understanding that, one, we can live here. Second, we really love living here. And third, how do we find ways of contributing to this beautiful, amazing area where we are not just the consumers of its beauty, but really contributing in whatever little way we can. So that dream of ours finally manifested in 96 when we shifted from Delhi to the mountains. And at that point, the only desire was to live here. And we we did decide to start an organization. And we were working with Thelonia at that point. So we started as a branch of the Barefoot College Thelonia Rajasthan. And Mr. Bankaroy became our mentor in this whole journey. And having started the journey with solar energy, that became the first point of intervention of the work of the organization. And that's how uh, Avni's journey started. In 1999, we registered Avni as a separate organization that continued the work of the Barefoot College Kumau. 
So since 99, we've been working around all the three um, different areas with traditional craft and technology, as well as conservation of natural resources. So that's how it began. And so reflecting back on that evolution and how things were when you first started, could you share with us how you have seen things change over that time, whether it's within the community or or through the three areas in which you work? Well, I think starting with the values that are important to us. And we saw ourselves as part of this process where the program or the subject just became a tool to arrive at this reality. And as we were living in the village, we we discovered that the community systems were still very strong. Having grown up in a city, you know, we don't see that much community action. We talk to village people about community action, but urban people are just in an individual cocoon, right? So for us, there was a lot of unlearning and learning of the reality of rural life in this small village. And that led to the dialogue and friendship with the community, where we were able to understand what the needs are from the community here. And slowly, the programs came into the picture. Now, initially, we thought that we saw the trend of out-migration from the area and we thought, okay, how can we impact this? One of the main reasons for out-migration was lack of livelihoods within this ecosystem. So a lot of the men were migrating out and they were sending home money orders with which the women were buying rations from the store and so on. So we found that slowly these systems were breaking down and we wanted to create a choice for people who wanted to stay back. See, we can't stop the cycle of out-migration and also wanderlust, which is normal. But we found that people were obliged to migrate. So from there began our intervention of what it is we will work with and how the systems will be set up. So as I mentioned inclusiveness, one of the very crucial things we found was that we didn't want to separate the village into divisions, you know, whether whether it was based on gender, whether it was based on caste, whether it was on economic vulnerability, we decided to look at a village as a whole, where there were poor people and middle level people and rich people. But all of them were contributing to that ecosystem of forest and land and uh, everything else, you know. At the time that we shifted in this area, communication was really poor. There were no telephones. Most of the villages where we were working were one hour to four hour walk from the nearest roadhead. So to our understanding, a village that is a four hour walk from the roadhead, everybody's in the same situation as far as the access to resources is concerned. So having taken inclusiveness as one of our principles, we found that it brought the village together slowly. People looked beyond caste and economic differences and worked together as a community, which they were already doing, but the whole process became stronger through the work that we were doing. As I mentioned, we started our work with solar energy. So I'll just chart that out for you a bit, just to connect it to the change that we've seen. As we began with solar lights, installing solar lights in villages and homes that had no electricity, we found that light itself brings a different reality in a home. You know, It's allowing people One, it can be linked to the fact that children can study in better light. The women, in case they are producers of uh, uh, textiles, of hand spinning or whatever, they're able to work a little bit more 
if it is very dark, if there is light in the home. But more than that, it was the energy of the house which changes, you know. So we worked with bringing solar lights to about that many years, maybe about 3,500 households. And we built the whole system around the fact that the village has to become self-sufficient. So young people in the village were trained as solar technicians and a financial system was set up, which gave self-sufficiency to the village where this money was collected by the users in anticipation of the repair and maintenance of these systems. Now linked to that, we found that very poor families were not participating in this program because they had to pay a small amount for the usage of the light. That is how institutionally we thought if we want to include the poorest of the poor, then increasing incomes becomes our responsibility. With that thought in mind, we started working with 20 families of traditional artisans in that area. This was the Shoko community that used to trade with Tibet and were producers of Tibetan wool products like carpets, shawls, blankets, pile rugs, and so on. But over the years, the payment they got for products like this was not sufficient for this skill to survive. So the younger generation was already not willing to pursue it. This is already in 96, you know. So we said, okay, if we are to work with this enterprise, the first thing we need to tackle is fair wages. And, you know, as an institution, we needed to learn about wool, about weaving. So that's what we set out to do. And slowly, slowly, this enterprise from 20 families grew to about 2,200 families pre-COVID. So the change during this time, what, what we set out to do was impact out migration and the people who migrate are mostly young boys and men. Despite our best efforts, we found that the stability of the men and young boys who are trained as weavers to be part of the enterprise, they didn't stay back after a couple of years. But what actually happened is that our really vulnerable women and school dropout young girls, this group are the people who stayed back in the village. But the enterprise that was created around the craft allowed them to become self-sufficient, self-reliant, and create a different reality for their children. And this whole story has been growing for the last 20 years now. So the change we have seen, economic empowerment brought social change, which meant the age of marriage of the school dropout girls went from 17 years or 18 years to 24 to 27 years. That in itself was a big change because we didn't tackle the subject directly. We just helped the girls to get trained as weavers and they became earning members of the family and the decision to get them married organically became different. This kind of change we feel is stable because we were not the bringers of that change, you see. It was a change that came from the family. Now, the second uh, uh, group is the socially vulnerable women, women who are widows, abandoned by the husband or physically challenged. Some of the women came into this program and now have been with us for about 20 years. In the course of that time, they became completely self-reliant, educated their children, built their homes, and 
there was a life of dignity you know their place in society changed because they were self sufficient so all these things we have seen happen you know and again these are villages which were quite remote at that time today road has reached in some of the villages in the last 4 5 years so the reality is going to change again that's great and and so encouraging and it really shows that over a period of time how within the community those subtle or intangible changes or levels of impact have been taking place right yeah if we talk about impact in terms of numbers or in terms of mm. physicality of it right one there was this whole ecosystem that was created now this whole enterprise around the craft revival has become a producer owned cooperative which has been running for the last 15 years on its own it was registered in 2005 and now it's a self reliant cooperative that for us has been a very big journey you know second it has generated cash income in areas where there are not that many sources of income you know cash income it's all supplementary mostly because people are agrarian primarily in this area so they need cash income only for few things and again it is need based and as we started working with textiles we wanted to set up an enterprise that had a very low carbon footprint because textile as you know is one of the largest polluting second largest polluting industry in the world so when you say textiles means you're talking of dyes water energy all of this together so right at the beginning we we really felt that we don't want to be responsible for any pollution in this area therefore whatever we do has to have a closed loop of production cycle so we decided to opt for plant based dyes which were also a tradition in this area but the color palette was very limited now as the whole business around textiles and natural dyes grew we saw that natural dyes by themselves were a big business so we started working with farmers to purchase dye material locally and that had a direct impact on forest you know people started planting and protecting trees without us doing a plantation drive and we saw the linkage between monetizing a natural resource and its protection by the community at the end of the day the benefit from an ecosystem is what drives its conservation as well now the benefit could be monetary or it could be in kind but that is a linkage which became established and proven for us and that model has grown since then so we saw that there was a lot of regeneration of biodiversity then we also started working on invasive species you know which impact the forest negatively and we started making colors from invasive species like geratina adenophora it's the number 3 invasive species in southeast asia and in india there are forests of it across the himalayas from arunachal pradesh to kashmir so we've been developing applications where this weed can be reused and therefore the forest will regenerate the third was the reclamation of wastelands in terms of impact we've reclaimed about 125 acres of wastelands in addition to plantation of dye yielding trees also the cultivation of indigo in these this part of the himalayas you know so we've innovated on a model that grows altitude specific indigo plants and farmers from different uh, altitudes 
are able to earn income. And we've decentralized this whole story, demystified the production of indigo, and slowly trying to reclaim wastelands with the cultivation of indigo. So all that has created a very beautiful story, you know, of color in this region. Yeah, that that truly is a very lovely and vivid description of that change and impact through the ecosystem. I'm sure that that hasn't come without its own challenges and, and setbacks too. So from a business perspective, Rashmi, what does scale look like for you, for Avni? And what have been some of the challenges you faced as you have diversified and grown? See, in terms of scale, I think most of the expansion of the work is in a relatively small geographical area. It's across two districts and we work in all in 108 villages, not equally deeply in all of them. But we took a decision as a team that we would like to go deep rather than spread ourselves thin geographically, because we felt that this is how we can set up a model that demonstrates that a sustainable rural business can be set up, which is run by local people, which is respecting local traditional knowledge and also regenerating the local biodiversity. So we felt that if we spread ourselves thin, the whole process may not be as effective. So that was one. But in terms of people, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, we started in 96. And by 2022, I think we are working with the grandchildren of the women. Now, this new generation has a totally different mindset from the community in 96 because they their aspirations are different what they want to do with their life the exposure to media is immense at the time we came there was no electricity no telephone today there are mobile phones in with everybody right so it's a totally different and new reality we are dealing with today so there to find a space where young people are willing to work in let's say hand skills like weaving and spinning and natural dyeing, it's, it has been a challenge in the last few years, I would say. Having said that, there is a small section of young people who are very energized and enthused by this um, field, whether it's technology or, you know, craft. So the scale has happened slowly over time. And we've sort of been able to find people who have stayed either as producers or as managerial team. We have invested a lot in our local team as well. So the enabling of the local team, I think, has been our biggest achievement. Today, all core functions in the institution are handled by a local team that have been with us from between 18 to 20 years. There's been a lot of, uh, you know, all the systems are computerized, digital literacy, and, you know, it's part of the training of the team. And... The producer has always remained at the center of this whole cycle. And again, in the field of social enterprise, you know, we've had a 20-year journey and we've seen that the expansion, the growth is slow. Especially in an area like this, we have built very strong foundations. Any social change takes a long time. It's not quick. There are no shortcuts, you know. So, so therefore, we feel that a slow sustainable model which matches the pace of life in rural areas is the key 
because we don't want to disturb the pace of life. We don't want to create a Delhi here because that's not the reality here, you know. Therefore, the scaling has been at the pace of rural life. We have adapted and educated the customer base rather than fast forward the rural producer. So that has been a buffer, a role of a buffer that we've played, you know. And the challenges, of course, you know, we, we have had, for example, we took the decision that we will train young school dropout girls as weavers, for example. Now, that means after six or seven or 10 years, the girl is going to get married. So the downside of the story is that we are continuously under training. Every six, seven years, a whole chunk of weavers gets married. So we go back under training. But that was a conscious institutional decision we took after six or seven years of our functioning that there is a role to be played there. A young girl who is economically independent for seven to eight years learns to take decisions, learns to say no, stand up for herself. So socially, her place in society already changes by the time she decides to get married. As I said, she decides to get married to the boy where she feels she would like to get married. No, her no has value by then. So we decided that, okay, that's part of what we do. So it's not just an enterprise. It's also an agent of social change through this process. So that was, that's a challenge. I mean, as a business, it's a challenge. I think the biggest challenge that we face so far, because we are slightly inaccessible, I mean, in a relatively remote area, attracting young professional talent has been an issue because for certain functions, we willy-nilly have ended up in a space which is in uh, slow textiles or rather a fashion space, whereas it's a rural enterprise, you know. So we need professional resource, but sometimes don't have the means to attract them because the remuneration in a rural area does not match a city remuneration structure. So that has been a challenge. We found some good people, but they stay for two years, maximum three years. We haven't found people who would come and stay, let's say, 10 years and are part of building the institution. That has been a challenge. Fundraising also to a certain extent because... As an institution, we are very clear about the direction where we are going. So the next step is to find donors that believe in this mission, in this vision, and are willing to support it. Because we don't follow the funder's path, you know, because there are institutions who only fund certain things. And to sustain the institution, you either go that path and say, okay, we will go where the money is available, and the institution will do those activities. But still, being in an infrastructure poor area, it was a big uphill battle to just create the infrastructure, you know. Just to give an example, when we shifted where we are today, where the organizational campus is, this was grassland. There was not a single building here. And we decided to put up two tents, one for the guests, one for us. And we stayed in that tent for a year and a half. And we had gone to one funding organization to ask for a rainwater harvesting tank in Delhi. And we were lectured about institutions creating their infrastructure by people sitting in an air-conditioned office drinking bottled water. There is a context to everything, you know. It's not 
always just like this. So we felt that there is going to be always a gap between where we are working and the needs of this area. Because we, I couldn't hire a building to set up looms and just start weaving, you know. Because we didn't want to displace any artisans, the work had to reach the village, which meant first we needed a space where looms could be installed. So eventually, after renting a space in four or five places across six, seven years, we finally decided to build a center there. So a village, a wonderful person in the village donated individual land to the organization. We raised money to construct a building in a village which was four hours walk from the road. And that was the largest center that we have till today. It, it houses 14 looms and artisans come from about half an hour to one hour walk maximum because that whole valley was not connected by road. There were many villages, but people had to walk a lot, you know. So this is how slowly things moved and we were able to support our vision of a decentralized enterprise that did not displace the artisan by creating a factory that would reduce cost, but destroy the lifestyle of this producer, you know? So for us, the cost of lifestyle of the artisan and the farmer have been at the core of everything we do. Wow. What a powerful example of somebody from within the community or, or the village taking that ownership and giving their land for this activity and, and them real, really seeing the value and, and investing in it in, in, in their own way. That's a huge accomplishment. Thank you. No, and also this gentleman, I mean, you know, to have the vision and to have the grace to think of young people of his entire village, not just his own family, you know. There are very few people like that. Uh, extremely appreciative of that. And following from that, three more people donated land in different other, other different villages. So we set up centers there too. That's great. And Rashmi, what are some of the other moments that have made you proud of the accomplishments Avni has achieved over the years? There have been a couple of good moments. You know, um, this whole model of working in the village and working in this, you know, with the self-sufficiency of a village, reviving hand-spinning, hand-weaving. So we were given this Janki Devi Bajaj Award for Rural Entrepreneurship. And our work was really appreciated and shown in contiguity with what Gandhiji had started as a movement for village empowerment. And then Janki Deviji herself continued in villages where she was working. And Avni's work was showcased in the same thread of work. I mean, we felt so touched and humbled and grateful for the way our work was seen. And that was a moment of, uh, yeah, we were very touched. And then we received an award from ATRI, an organization in Bangalore, for our work with development, livelihoods and conservation. And that award was presented to us by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. So I think that moment was like the epitome of what we could do in a way because we felt that you know to have received this award from his hands was a blessing and nothing can you know compare with that then we we had sent our team three members of our rural team for a course in IIM Ahmedabad there were two managers 
and the third person is the president of the cooperative who has only studied till eighth grade. This was her first exposure. Now, IIM Ahmedabad is a very premier, prestigious institution. They had started this course on creative and cultural businesses where they were mentoring rural enterprises and startups across a period of one year with you know, the scaling and the business analysis and so on and so forth. So this team, the two managers of this cooperative and the president, they were there in the course. And at the end of the course, they had to make the jury presentations. And out of 32 enterprises, they were among the six best who were selected to present on stage. Now, for me, that was a moment of such pride. I cannot, I cannot describe that they had the confidence, the presence, and the quality of work that they delivered on their own, having had the practical experience here, of course, but still to hold their own in an audience where most people were highly qualified, had business degrees and so on, and, you know, shine like this. So it was quite amazing. Those are some really great examples, Rashmi. Very, very special. So... What is it that keeps you up at night? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't worry too much, actually, because this whole story has become a contiguous whole. We are very much part of the process. So it's not always me doing something. And I am good at waiting, you know, waiting for the right time, waiting for things to happen. When necessary, I am taking action. So there's not too many things like that. The only challenge I felt was during lockdown, because you see, we were responsible for a very large number of families who earn their livelihood through the cooperative, and also all the managers who are employed by the cooperative, also the team at Avni, you know. So that became, I was worried at that time because I was not sure about the sales. Our online presence was not very strong. Our product is a very tactile product, you know. And at that moment, our online sale model was not strong enough. We're still working on it. It's not yet got where it should be. But yeah, those two things did worry me across the two years of the pandemic. Because at the end of the day, we are in service of the families that are part of this whole enterprise, no? They are dependent on the income that they earn. And if we are not able to make enough sales, you know, it was a point of worry. But having said that, we actually were able to retain all the artisans. We paid the stipends all through the lockdown. I think what worries me more is how do you, how do you bring home the importance and urgency of a model like this to a population that is only upwardly mobile, that is an expert at consumption. Sometimes I feel this work is useless, you know. For example, I'm talking of organic detergent. At a rural level, we are looking at trees. We are looking at a pH-neutral biodegradable soap. When I go to a city, I look at the consumption patterns of people, you know, and I'm saying... How do you even attempt to impact this audience? Because they are not, I'm not saying everybody, but largely speaking, that is not the path where we are going. So our work is actually upstream, you know? We are, we are 
in a totally opposite direction. That is what worries me sometimes, that what will be the eventual impact of all this that we've been trying to do for 25 years? Will it expand? Will it get replicated? Because then only there'll be some impact and some change. If our work and our mandate and our life philosophy is to care for the earth and her people, because Avni means the earth, if that is what our life journey is about, I mean, we can just say, okay, we've done enough, 25 years is enough. But we feel that it is so doable. It can bring positive impact and for so many people in rural areas, you know. So why and how can we take it to the next level? Will it ever go to the next level, you know? It is a worry. What keeps me up also is we have so many urban young people coming to us for internships and so on. And I keep wondering, sometimes they have three, four degrees to their name, you know. And I keep wondering, when will they work? When will there be a production, you know, production of whatever it is, vegetables or craft or gasification or whatever it is, you know. Because there is this whole trend of the number of producers is decreasing and the number of consumers is increasing. And you keep wondering when this is going to pan out, you know. So it is linked to my work. It is also what we see on a daily basis, no? So this is what I think keeps me up more than anything else. <laughs> how, do we, how do we even make a dent in something like this, no? It's a lifetime's work, you know. It is. It is indeed. And that's a great segue to the legacy question. So, Rashmi, how would you like Avni to be remembered? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I think we would like to be remembered or I would like this enterprise to continue for the next three generations at least. We would like to be remembered as an example, a living example of a thriving, rural, ecologically sustainable enterprise with a low carbon footprint that brings communities together, that looks at the integratedness of the whole, not piecemeal, you know, and also the interconnectedness of everything, you know? how we are all part of this ecosystem. And to really feel that, to really, you know, in our being, to come together. The programs are not important. It's how we think. What is our eye to look at our context, you know? So I think what our legacy would be, the how of it, you know, how to look at yourself and your environment. The moment our eye and our way of looking changes, our whole way of functioning changes. So I think, yeah, we would just like to emphasize that we are very much part of this experiment, part of this journey. We are not developing anybody. We are not social workers. It is an experiment, a journey together. So our whole team, we are all a community together. So the togetherness is what we want to emphasize and also be seen as an institution in the long term. Yes, it is definitely thought leadership as well. But uh, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's all I could come up with. That's terrific. That's great. And some really good food for thought in terms of consumption and consumers. 
Well, Rashmi, if the sky was the limit and you had no constraints, what would you do? What are some of those big dreams for Avni? Well, a couple of them. <laughs> One, okay, I'm just, sorry, I'm focusing on textiles a bit here. But I see that we have many hundred million artisans, right? 200 million or so artisans across the country with a very real source of livelihood. That's not virtual. No? So I feel that there should be resources invested in creating simpler solutions that are more eco-friendly, that are centralized maybe, that allow access to technologies and natural dye and natural fiber materials to weavers across the country. That is one. Second would be, I feel there should be a learning center, learning centers rather. One, I wanted to focus on colors, the anatomy of color, what it means, how it impacts us, the healing effects, the, the whole spectrum of activities that color does, its impact on the forest, its impact on human health, and also in terms of treating diseases. I would like to just create this, the learning center, which focuses on color, compassion, and creativity. That's one spectrum. The other institute, this institute would also do research on different applications, just focusing on color and plant-based dyes, really. The other center is talking about sustainability, slow living, and regeneration. So this institute will give experiential learning to students from all walks of life could be students, it could be midlife professionals, it could be people looking for a change. Anybody who would like to understand how to live a more connected and ecologically sustainable life, because that is where we are finding the biggest gap in a lot of people. We are getting a whole spectrum of people who are coming to us. Professionals who are at the top of the career still want to simplify their lifestyle, not satisfied with what they have achieved and accomplished and the money that they are earning. There's something missing inside. So we want this whole journey to the inner world to begin with some outside hooks, if you will, that will allow them to really explore their own story. Because that's what has happened with us in our institution, you know. I think I should talk about it a little bit. When I said inclusiveness, we actually say that please leave your caste and degree at the gate because neither of them are our basis for working with anybody. You know, this is a community that is equal in all respects. There's equal opportunity for everyone. And, you know, we didn't conduct interviews for a very long time. We trained whoever came to us. And that was the trust in every individual, trust in the gifts given by existence to every individual and to provide the opportunity and the space for them to discover their calling. That is what we would like to create on a larger scale, where you have the time and space to really discover yourself through, of course, you know, different subjects. Those are some great aspirations and they also sound not too unreasonable, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it just feels that scaling up and okay, we'll set up, you know, I want to set up a whole art supply factory. Of course, I want to do it. But that is something which will come, you know. We are creating these eco-friendly art supplies. So I know that if the whole thing is made here, 
it could lead the business in a totally different way as well. But more than that, as a personal journey now, I feel that's where my attention should be. You know, also on the replication. You know, young people have dreams, but they don't know how to start, how to begin, where to begin. So I don't want to call it incubation because that has become, it has a certain connotation. It's more a space. You you just learn the principles of setting up something where there is a great amount of respect for the context where you are in, you know, and then you follow your dream. So it becomes a center. How to say? I don't know the word for it. I'm not getting the word for it. But a lot of introspection and creation and going back to the areas where you were, but doing things differently. You may be doing the same things, but the how will change. And that is what will bring the change, I feel, on a larger scale. That's really well said. Thank you for sharing that. Well, as a follow-up to that, and as we begin to wrap up this incredible conversation, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs in the social impact space? See, I think, again, it is the how for me that is important, right? So one is the passion to do something has to be there, whether it's to bring change or to just follow your, you know, your calling. The second is staying with it, staying with the, staying the course. If we get defeated very quickly or any obstacles on our way become a very big challenge, that is not, I mean, overcoming these obstacles becomes part of the journey. Yeah. And to stick with whatever you've started with. The third is honoring and treasuring the journey as much as the goal. So there is a goal, but the how of the journey will actually define the goal. Setting a goal and changing the how is not going to work. So what we've discovered is that our intention and passion becomes the magnet for things to happen. So the cleaner and clearer our intention is, that much support, help one gets from existence. And again, you know, it's someone has said that when you are single pointed and focused on something that you want to do, the existence conspires to make it happen. So I totally believe in the X factor. A good business plan will only get you to a certain place. It does not guarantee success. And success is not the reason you do something always. Adulation and accolades is not why you start to do something. That may happen, but that's a byproduct. It happens because of the intensity and honesty of effort. It's not a shortcut to fame, especially in this space of social enterprise. Otherwise, it is just a commercial business and that's good also, right? So I want to redefine this a little bit because I have uh, in my experience of last few years, the whole space of social enterprise also has become this fast forwarded, quick upscaling, large numbers story. You know, now social impact is about people. It's also about change in people's thought process, which is a lifelong and very slow process. It's not related to quick numbers. So your intention and honesty, I think, is what what will get you where you want to get. I think that's, that's about it. 
Many thanks for listening to this episode of the Social Impact Pulse. We hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback and feel free to rate and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode of the Social Impact Pulse is a project of the Artisan Gateway and the Rise Artisan Fund.